This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Welcome, everybody. This is Steve, and this is the Baked and Awake podcast. Very happy to be joined today by a good friend of mine, fellow podcaster, uh, host of a great show that I'm a big fan of, The Eastern Border, my friend Christoph Sanderson's. Welcome. Hello. Uh, yeah, if you guys are listening to this on The Eastern Border, you heard this all in the intro, too, where I explained this whole situation. I'm really honored to be here, and I hope that you like our commentary on this very interesting text and document. We're going to frame our conversation today around a particular document that we just have recently become aware of. Uh, I think both of us had some low-level awareness of this doc for at least the last few months or year mm-hmm. or so, um, and I know it's been around for a little longer than that, so we're not representing this as like breaking news, okay? But it's something that I think a lot of people still have not heard of at all, and uh that that's live uh, podcasting for you right there. But that is a really interesting document, and it's another document from a resource that I've also but recently become aware of and started to go back to to mine more aggressively for cool and interesting and perhaps important information that pertains, in this case, to a topic that I've already been looking into and that I'm interested to get to when we're chatting about it. But This doc came from a resource called the CIA Reading Room, and this was published by the CIA as a result of one or more Freedom of Information Act or FOIA Act requests from people to see this document and a number of others that have become public domain. They aren't all completely unedited. They aren't all completely unredacted, etc. This particular doc reads pretty cleanly, but... For example, we do not see an author's name on this report, but this doc was obtained from a CIA.gov URL uh, resource that I've gone to before for other documents, a recent document that I talked about on the podcast here, the Gateway Process document. Uh, That's the analysis and assessment of the Gateway Process. If you're subscribed to the podcast, just scroll downward in whatever feed you've got that you've already seen you know, and selected this episode of the show from to find that doc and that episode of the podcast. Likewise, uh, we'll get to it, but there are podcast episodes that I've done already that pertain to the topic that we're going to get to. So just to clear this one up, because we have to use podcast insert name here. If you listen to this on the Eastern Border, go scroll down. It's going to be in my show notes. If you listen to this on Baked in the Wake, go scroll down. It'll be in that show notes, too. There you go. 100%. Well, I mean, so we'll not only have the link to the, the CIA.gov doc, we'll have links to Christop's website and podcast feed. And, and, and your website and, and podcast and, feed. Of course, exactly. So we're looking at the Mole Atlas a little bit for fun as we talk about it, too. Uh, and that's a doc that I've done a short walkthrough of on my YouTube channel, and you guys can check that out. But that is in the context of the mystery of Grand Tartaria, and that's the context in which we came across this document that we're going to talk about today but not read. Christops read it in full, uh, and we've published it along with the text of the doc visually on a, in a YouTube video that's out right now and that you can find on my YouTube channel. So the link uh, will be in the show notes for that. 
Uh, but you can find me on YouTube just by searching Baked and Awake. We thought that it would be important for you to get the whole scope of the document because I was originally intending to read this document and give you comments throughout it. But this way, I think we have a more clearer image and uh, we can like you know, talk about the document as a whole as well. It's kind of more in-depth and less chaotic. Okay, so awesome. So everybody knows where to find us both, and we're going to make sure to take care of you to get you pointed at the source materials and some any supplemental resources that we deem helpful or necessary for the conversation. Oh, yeah, and uh, one thing, though, this is uh, my second episode from the West Coast. There we go. This is also... I'm glad to have you hanging out in the house, in the studio. I do have to say that Seattle is a beautiful city and that your Space Needle is amazing, especially when up close. I like the water tower, though. And the black sun, where you can, like, see the Space Needle, that was, that was, awesome. The, that was awesome. That's, like, the biggest impression of the thing. That's a uh, volunteer park we went to, yeah. Um, so we are looking at a document today that we've just recently put out for anybody to listen to in full. But you can also read it on screen or print it out. I find a great way to get the full value out of the document is to read it. Yeah, I you think know, so. Uh, like we have it right in front of us here. The full title of the doc is National Cultural Development Under Communism. Hence, one of the great reasons why we're so fortunate to have had Christops read it for us, just because the main sort of topic area of history that you handle is is Soviet Cold War era sort of history. And that's not very far off from the era that this document really sort of covers. Uh, this this part of history is a little earlier in history that this document tends to cover this and is, focus on. My dad was born in this year, 1957. There we go. And like, you know, I, as I really collected stuff from my grandparents, they just remember that era by themselves, and that's a big deal, so. That's right. So it was, so it was prepared in 57, okay? It refers to... Events that happened in Soviet history in the 20s and 30s. So we'll understand that about the timeline of this doc. It was approved for release in 1999 and only became more commonly available or understood to be available at all in years since then. Probably, I mean, if you think about the state of the Internet in 1999, it was nowhere near as sophisticated as it is today. And so if it did exist in a CIA reading room or an equivalent, uh, I doubt it <laughs> sounded anything as cool as the CIA but, reading room back in 1999. You probably had to still work a little harder to actually get this document through the Freedom of Information back in that time. Oh, man, so. it would also go through dial-up, you know, at least back at home. Exactly, there you go, there you go. Even through forget, the phone line. Forget, forget about the rest. Like, yeah, it just would have taken longer. <laughs> It just would have been more laborious, period. Well said. So um, it's a cool doc and an interesting report. And things that struck us about it were just a number of things as Christops went through it and read it, especially aloud. Um, and at that point, it was, you know, our second read through probably each of the doc at that point. It sort of begins with a opening salutation, the report. And it's a quotation from a proclamation from 1917 by the Bolsheviks over the signatures of Lenin and Stalin. And uh, it was addressed anyway to, quote, all Muslim toilers of Russia and the East. So the name of the document, as we already mentioned, National Cultural Development Under Communism. So is that title of this doc, is that ironic at all? Is it funny at no, all? No, it's kind of a... Is it humorous in a way? It's a, it's a kind of this... 
It describes the document perfectly as it does look at the state of the national wealth. It is true, right? right? It is true. But it doesn't really do much. One thing that is important about this title, about the year it was published, is that, uh, if you remember, there was a, an Arab-Israeli war. In to, 57, around no, it there. Was, uh, like okay. it, was a bit, it was a bit later. It was like in the early 60s. Okay. But mm-hmm. the tensions between the uh, Arabs and, and Israel in the Middle East are high at this point, And as history showed us, there were multiple wars between them uh, where Soviets supported the Arab side of this. And also, Soviets interacted and used these Middle Eastern Arab countries with their embassies. Basically, they would get information about the United States and work with people who could get info about the United States from United States embassies in this region. At this point in time, this region of, of the North Africa and Middle East is of special interest to the Soviet Union because they hoped to gain some leverage in the Cold War, they said, in 1957. And this is why they were funding all sorts of revolutionary groups in those countries and building socialist support, which would then give them like more easier access, get them into their own sphere of influence. So one thing that needs to be looked at is that, as I see this document, it is intended for some local leaders in these Arab countries on these Muslim, majority Muslim countries, to their leaders, to their important people over there, so that they would read and learn about how it was like in the Soviet Union, so that to get mm-hmm. an edge in the Cold War. Because mm-hmm. again, this whole thing the document looks at, remember, he talks about things from 1917, so not like they didn't know it before, they couldn't publish this before, because 1957 is pretty late, Stalin's dead already, right? The, the specific choosing of when this document was prepared, I think, also significant. Is significant. Yeah, because this is like, well, they could have done this earlier and could have tried to warn this, but they're doing this right now, because, hey, they need to gather up stuff so that the Soviets won't get influence there. Can you do the listeners a favor and give them a taste of what the reading of the doc is like? Can you read this opening paragraph right here, starting oh, Muslims of Russia and just ending it? Muslims of Russia, Tatars of the Volga and the Crimea, Kyrgyz and Sarts of Siberia and Turkestan, Turks and Tatars of the Transcaucasia, Chechens and mountain peoples of the Caucasus, and all you whose mosques and prayer houses have been destroyed, whose beliefs and customs have been trampled upon by the Tsars and the oppressors of Russia. Henceforth, your beliefs and customs, your national and cultural institutions are forever free and inviolate. Organize your national life and complete freedom. This is your right. Uh, yeah, this go. is this is the Bolsheviks to the indigenous nation states all around this region yeah. of of Russia that's been because, expanded into because by them. you know because Russia expanded outwards right. but it, but it, it didn't do it like it happened here in the United States they did it in more of a British way so your local army garrison arrives at a place where local tribes are plants their flag bribes the leaders and says okay you are now um, autonomous region of Russia. How far do your lands go? Oh, this far? Great. Adding that to the map. Moving on. And then they would come back and kind of do the policing. That's, wow. It's kind of colonial attitude. We're talking about, like, uh, essentially colonial people, except that they're all inside of mainland Russia. But, you know, Russia is so huge that they cover a lot of those people. Because everyone on the fringes is basically a colonial subject in a weird way. So, but that's how I see it, at least. So, this is the Bolsheviks, as we say, kind of telling... The folks, one thing at the time they're rising to power, fomenting revolution, yeah, and taking over Russia. But in the years subsequent to their takeover, right? So this is Lenin and Stalin 
coming together, and this is actually this is them making an appeal to the uh, to the indigenous peoples of the Baltic states and, and to have Baltics, Caucasus, Siberian regions, everyone else. Okay. What's important to note is that when this proclamation is made, this is one of the very few things that drove Stalin to power. So this is how they got people to support them in deposing the Tsars. Yes, because Stalin, at this point, he's, you know, he's the guy from Caucasus, from Georgia himself, and he's intelligent enough, and he's been, you know, up there with the guys enough, because everyone else is either Muscovy Russian, or, well, a lot of Jews were there, and a lot of, you know, Latvians as well. That's kind of ethnicities, up until Stalin started his purges. But at this point, if you want to speak to the peoples, especially concerning peoples in the Caucasus, you need to have a local guy sign your paper for it to be sort of legitimized in those places, you see. And then they just pick Stalin, because he's from Georgia, and this is kind of the first case where Stalin gets in a prime position, where he's mentioned alongside one of the leaders of the whole revolutionary matter, because previously he was a third-rate administrator, but he, you know, happens to be Georgian, which is not very white. It's, uh, you know, I don't know. We, we we call them white. Everyone knows that they're white, but then again, I don't know how these things work. But, but they're nominally some sort of minority. Yeah, well, basically, they're, they're darker-skinned people with mm-hmm. certain features of their culture. I don't even know. So this, this report is about, you know, sort of compiles a couple different sources, and it shows its sources at the end. But they go on to further kind of explain how Lenin and Stalin had positioned their philosophy as regards native peoples. That was one proclamation, the one addressed to all Muslim toilers of Russia and the East. And then a separate one in 1917, 15 November, it also shows here in the report, it goes on to enumerate a few points. It says the Council of People's Commissars had decided to base its activities with regard to the nationalities of Russia on the following principles. One, equality and sovereignty of the nations of Russia. Sounds good. Equality and sovereignty of the nations of Russia. Hey, that's, that's a pretty cool deal. Right. Sound for that. Yeah. Okay. Number two, the right of nations to free self-determination, including the right to secede and form independent states. That's amazing. Oh, yeah, you know, just a couple of years later, we have massive civil wars, then trying to take over our Baltic countries and everywhere else, and then there's this Ukrainian thing, and thing with the Poles fighting off the Soviets with Tukhachevsky in front. So safe to say that worked perfect. That was, that was, that was that totally great. proven as absolutely not completely fake in uh, three years' time, yeah. Uh, let's see, number three, abolition of all national and national religious privileges and restrictions whatsoever. So what they're trying to characterize in native Westerner speak is, although it says abolition of national and national religious privileges, it also is abolition of like restrictions. So some sort of religious freedom statement. Mm -hmm. Okay, right, okay. The problem is that at this point the state is officially atheistic. Oh, shoot. Not not a separation of church and state, but but is officially atheistic. And they have their own newspaper, Bezbozhnik, which means the godless. And then they they spread that around, and you have people uh, sitting, you have pioneers, local Boy Scouts. We're talking about Russia here, right? Yeah, and and everywhere else, still, in the Soviet Union. They had a massive, USSR will be technically created in 1922, but works. 
but mm-hmm. close enough. But yeah, they had like a massive atheism well, they still campaign. have a battle ahead of them at this point. They're, yeah. they're issuing these proclamations yeah, but to like, make their alliances, to get their yes. support from But people. it ended up with basically, mm-hmm. basically church being all but made completely illegal. Wow. Like, just in general, any church, any faith whatsoever. Let's see. Because the this, traditional this. belief, traditional quote is that if you believe in paradise in the afterlife, then you are not devoted enough to build a communist paradise on this earth. Therefore, religion is poisonous to communism, at least in the Soviet sense of the word. So let's see, what was uh, number four? Freedom of development for the national minorities and ethnographic groups inhabiting the territory of Russia. Well, two words, Prague Spring. (laughs) That thing what they were trying to do and a lot of other things. But yeah, so basically these proclamations sounded nice at the time. It was really cool. And the document focuses specifically on Muslim peoples. Yeah, it mentions that it kindled great hope, though. Yeah, it did. It did. Especially, which is interesting to note... They sound great. They sound really high-minded. Also, remember that we're talking about this very not-known fact, which I dedicated an episode to, about how at this point in time... Uh, United States, together with Canada and the British, will invade Russia from North and Arkhangelsk, too. So, like, Americans and, and, like, the Western peoples are coming in, and so the Soviets have to, like, rally the people. So they do these proclamations, and when, you know, they fight back in this unknown war, then the opportunity that the West had to influence the people... That was that one story that you told on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, the fact is that... The fact is that... Probably Western values didn't catch on because at that point the Soviets rallied everyone to like fight back the West together with the whites and everything. But in the Civil War, talking the general timeline, not specifically 1917, but there we go. Slight, slight tangent, but a but great episode of the Eastern Border. No, it's that like you guys the thing is, out. the thing is that exactly like you said, they needed they needed the local populations to you know support them because the Civil War was coming. So, uh, you know, so the document, this report, paints. A picture of the Bolsheviks telling one story to make friends, to rise to power. And then these same folks, now communists and part of the USSR a few years later, um, rolling out a number of sort of mandatory programs that were employed widely Uh in education, right, around the country and also in like commerce and in publishing, right? So Mm -hmm. books in whatever state it might be, whether it's... uh, the Crimea or Georgia or in your states as well, right? Yeah. In the Baltic states of uh, like Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania. Now you know what Lithuania is, there though. There we go. <laughs> uh, these are nations that have their own languages. These are nations that have books published in their own languages and, and histories in their own languages and, and their own written languages, importantly but that all of which are uh, required now to put Russian in front of their native language. And their kids are taught Russian alongside of, or maybe even first, Yeah, in a lot of cases, in ways, like kind of prioritized to their native tongues. And I mean, the doc kind of indicates they don't even really get to publish books that they would have published in their own native language languages and with their own viewpoints, right? Political viewpoints and things. That's banned because you have this nice little thing called the Board of Censorship. The Board of Censorship decides what gets published and what doesn't. And if you decide to even, you know, give in a work that's there, you know, with a dissenting opinion, then not only it will not get published, no one would be stupid enough to do that because then the nice men from the KGB appear during the night and you get taken away. You know, that's how it works in the greatest country on planet Earth. 
So we were interested in this document and this report very much for its general historical importance, but specifically because it ties into, in some obscure and interesting way, not super obscure, in fact, a very interesting and kind of seemingly obvious or seemingly like, aha, so great uh, kind of way to the mystery of the Grand Tartaria mud flood mystery. Okay. And, uh, you know... Anybody who's just coming to my podcast for the first time, you don't have to start with me, uh, but you can. And I've been talking about this mystery and the if we call it a conspiracy or if we call it a mystery or just an interesting fringe historical topic, alternative history topic, whatever label you want to apply. Grand Tartaria, you can also literally Google Grand Tartaria or YouTube search Grand Tartaria or Mud Flood and find loads of people you know, who are creating content all about this, many of whom are fairly serious researchers and who put together cool visual presentations about it as well. That said, I'm not going to go into the mystery in depth right now with all the background, and this document stands on its own as more than interesting enough. I am slightly more skeptical than, than Stephen here about conspiracy theories in general. Then again, I also know how so it's edited history, so... For me, this document kind of symbolizes where we can tie together, because, mm-hmm. hey, this is a lot of the real things that happen in the Soviet era, and I know that a lot of you guys love this paranormal conspiracy stuff, so, hey, might be interesting to look at it from that perspective, but we're definitely going to look at some very grim history stories here, because, there we go. There we go. For honestly, uh, one thing that was hard for me to do, and especially when we spoke about like language part, but the oppression of language, that was difficult for me, because the Soviets did that to a lesser extent than the document reports, at least for the Tartar territories, because we didn't have to change our alphabet. But the control was there. The Russian language got prioritized. For example, my birth certificate is primarily in Russian than in Latvian. But again, I, ha- I have to state that, yeah, this is about the changings of the alphabets in those language parts. That's true, but it happened all through the Soviet Union era, and find it a bit suspicious again, because the CIA just repeats and, and pushes this point on so for so much, that well, it's kind of hard to, far for people to understand, and it, there's kind of this hypocrisy on, you know, too, on the CIA part, especially since whatever they did in Nicaragua and other countries, which is kind of Central American countries. So it's kind of interesting that we're reading a document which quite accurately depicts the, the bad things that the Soviets did to my people and, you know, Muslim people and other peoples of the Soviet Union, and it's written by the guys who, you know, I've read a bunch of their histories and conspiracies and real things that they did, and it's it's basically a bear, like a wolf, or in your case, no, sorry, an eagle trying to poke out a bear's eye. Yeah, such is the manner in which the communists respect Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim national and cultural institutions, right? So you just actually characterized it a moment ago when you talked about, you know, languages being forcibly mm. changed. This is the section of the document. Here's another area where I'd love to bring you in uh, for it, my friend, and have you uh, read them. Uh, you know, well, shut up, guys. Where's the Tartaria reference anyway, if we have been paying attention and we do know what you're talking about? Okay, well, so here's this doc that we found, and yeah, it's a little bit propagandistic, and yeah, it came from an unknown source, and we found it in the CIA reading room, so take it with a grain of salt, right? But here's a neat reference from this doc from 1959. Yeah, and I call this document mostly historically accurate, because I can recognize a lot of things that happened to us it in the Baltic. It feels Baltimore. 
feels that way. Yeah, you know, I can, I can, I can believe that someone disinformation might feel that way. I suppose. I guess, you but know? this document is mostly accurate. Right. Do you like this, mm. this one? Or let us take the matter of history, which, along with religion, language, and literature, constitute the core of a people's cultural heritage. Here again, the communists have interfered in a shameless matter. For example, on 9th of August, 1944. The Central Committee of the Communist Party, sitting in Moscow, issued a directive ordering the party's Tartar Provincial Committee, quote, to proceed to a scientific revision of the history of Tartaria, to liquidate serious shortcomings and mistakes of nationalistic character committed by individual writers and historians in dealing with Tartar history, end quote. In other words, Tartar history was to be rewritten, was to be falsified. Uh, tangent from me, yeah, so far this document is totally historically authentic. In order to eliminate references to great Russian aggressions and to hide the facts of real course of Tartar-Russian relations. And this was no isolated case. In every Muslim area within the USSR, historians on orders of the Communist Party have rewritten history to distort the facts so that the Russians appear always in a good light. Another tangent, not just in Muslim areas, in every Soviet area. Needless to say, histories which present the facts truthfully have been withdrawn and destroyed so that the present and future generations of Muslims are forever denied the chance of learning the true facts of the nation's past. Third tangent on this single paragraph. And in Russia itself as well, just so the history would be fixed just in the right way, because that's just how the Soviets worked. I can recognize all of this and I relate to that. With this whole thing. And we've all seen nice little, you know, photographs which Stalin just erases people. And if you speak about those people in some sort of positive way, not the party way, you'll just get eliminated. It's like musical chairs, but you always lose and get shot. I was going to say, the, the report, like, the very next paragraph is a story about what they characterize. Again, propagandistically somewhat. Great Russian chauvinism, but Russians taking a Kazakh hero of the people and identifying him as an enemy of the state and sort of totally rewriting his political and public persona and reputation, well, and he goes down in history as a jerk and a turd because yeah, of this is Russian by the way. disinformation. This is the CIA part of this thing. When they say great Russian chauvinism, it kind of implies that they put the blame on the Russian people. Right. Which I feel wrong, because even today, and I'm no fan of Putin This is probably all. written by a Russian asset in Something. Europe. Writing for the CIA, I guess, but so, yeah. speaking in terms that he probably thinks they like. Oh, yeah, because because it looks like, you know, Russian people are one of the kindest, nicest people. They have just been very unlucky with their governments, and I don't blame mm-hmm, Russians mm-hmm. for this. The fact that this is like, the fact that this document implies that it's like, you know, every Russian ever now hates every non-Russian, I kind of don't like that. I don't course, like that about this document, but it kind of comes off this way, but like you said, that, that might be one of the reasons. Exactly. I think he's pandering to his audience a little bit, whoever the writer of this report is. You yep. Know. So, a pretty great, I mean, we don't need to run away from there. We can, you know, look at that that reference a little bit, but it's so great because, I mean, we've got express reference to Tartaria. Tartar history being rewritten, let us be frank, falsified. You know, these are great, really juicy references for friends in the crowd who are on the Tartaria hunt. If you haven't already come across this document, you know, it's it's easy one to just Google search up based on the title, National Cultural Development Under Communism, or you can just search these show notes and you'll find it there. It speaks directly to the narrative that, like, the conspiracy theorist in me, you know, recognizes, which is 
here's the state rewriting history. Yep. Here's us catching them in the act. When I mentioned this to Kristaps, he was somewhat familiar with it. He's like, you know, I remember hearing about Stalin something something about Russian history around that time. Like, you weren't totally ignorant of this when I sort of mentioned, right? I said there was yeah, a connection. There is, like, a, there's you like a, in modern day, too, what's important part of this is, like, this day... Um, this is mainstream history is what I was getting at, right? I ish, know, know. you know, ish. I know, right? like, for, for Stalin really doing. did edit history. So uh, those of you who listen to Eastern War, you know that Stalin cities are, is our... Stalin cities is a long and dreadful journey. Mm-hmm. Most people know that... It's kind of hard to find, like, when three communist sources cite three different dates, because Stalin literally altered history. It's crazy. And in modern days, they kind of also, they use... There are some really crazy Russian pro-Putin propagandists who are pulling up sort of this nationalistic ideals by stating that, no, Holy Roman Empire was an invention... And that it never mm-hmm. existed that there were like uh, 300 years have been like just written up. Mm-hmm. That it was never there. Well, in some cases, a thousand. Some people say yeah, it's a thousand. But they use that to explain why Muscovy Russians, and I'm specific here because there's a bunch of other Russian people out there, uh, but specifically Muscovites, why they are the best supreme nation. It's kind of like Aryan thing, except it's the people from around Moscow area. So that's kind of always a bit shady to look at it, always, because you don't want to be tied up in that crap. It's a red flag for me that I noticed a while ago on this mystery. Um, Luckily, the people who I've found that are doing the best research on it all are coming at this from, I think, a more positive place and a more a place yeah, of historical yeah, accuracy, and they take pains to acknowledge observe and move on that whole sticky yeah. topic because uh, you're not going to find a whole bunch of there's one or two black guys researching this and mm-hmm. talking about it okay and uh, one in particular Dane Calloway has certainly been aware of it and I'll mention him and leave a note to his YouTube channel in the show notes as well this is the kind of thing that you'll see a lot of Europeans researching looking into and all about it right now so this is the story of that it area of the world in large part um, to my my European friends look I have been walking around these parts and explaining that yes we're we're different around them I if if you French guy who listens to this episode think that yes they do call us Europeans but then again hey we just have to swallow it because well in a way we all are I do need to work on that well (laughs) I'll get better at that after I've visited your part of the world it's totally fine but like you know I, it's bad. See the term. You, I know that the term European means something very different here than it does back at home. You have to understand that too. Well, you have to acknowledge this because it, it also carries way different connotations. And well, back at home, we haven't experienced a lot of the things that people have here, so I can kind of understand what they would think that you know Europeans are a thing, even though every European listener of this show knows that it isn't. But. Uh, but, but we have to acknowledge and accept this fact, and they have the right to say the term European. There, I have said this, and I'm Christoph Andreasons from Regal Latvia, from EU. It's legit now. Americans can just use Europeans to qualify us. They're allowed to. Thank you, my friends. <laughs> I hold you all in the highest esteem. I really do. I do. So, I don't think we need to go into it too much further right now, today, with this doc. Um, what we have in front of us is a really interesting historical report that was prepared for the CIA in 1959, and then we've gotten it decades later into the public sphere, 
and we're coming to understand it now in the context of a lot of different mysteries. To me, the armchair wannabe philosopher and full-time conspiracy guy, I find it fascinating because here's a big paragraph in the middle of this CIA document that references my Tartaria mystery. So I'm like, yes, home run. You should really check out the Tartaria stuff. Right. Check out the Tartaria stuff because you know what? I'm a skeptic, but it's interesting. It's interesting as even as even even if go. it might be just a thought experiment, it's a really good one because it makes you you know look at things differently, think about stuff differently, you know, twist your mind a bit. Even if as a mental exercise, I am I support you guys looking out and going out and checking out the Tartaria theory, which is interesting. So then that's the thing. We're not. I've done enough content on it at this point that we don't need to go into it right now for you. You can go back and listen to my old shit. This is an episode about a few different things. A great opportunity to take a look at the CIA reading room and ask ourselves how relatively valuable, because there's dozens, hundreds, thousands, guys, thousands of documents on CIA reading room. All right, so this at CIA.gov. You can go there and look up and do searches by keyword and stuff, too. So, like, I haven't even begun to really go there and, like, type in a keyword about something. Like, what if I want to go there and type in gnomes? And see what comes up. Gnomes, like, you know, Gnomeo and Juliet. Okay, like, secrets of the gnomes. Like, <laughs> you know, you don't know what you're going to get on that. Anyway. Um, for for your listeners and for but, you, too, I have mm-hmm. to think. I'm going to look it up at my... Exactly. See, thing that I want you to look at at some point, because, you know, you do these theories. There we go. There is a site called Shodan.io. Okay. Well, open it up. Yeah, I was going to say, S-H-O-D-A-N. Yeah. If you played System Shock 2, you know the reference and you're afraid already. I was going to say, it sounds cool. It sounds it's like a evil AI. or something. See, so this is the webpage where you can look up the Internet of Things. Oh, every right. every sure device of yours, every device of yours is, like, calculated there. And, like, if you are, if your device uses Internet, this is the Google for Internet of Things. The problem is... Is the search engines for refrigerators, webcams, washing machines, mm-hmm. nuclear power plants, mm-hmm. experimental research facilities, mm-hmm. the Internet of Things. And not only if you get the IP of the thing you want to find, you will, uh, you know, find the device where it's tied to. This nice page also shows you the vulnerabilities this thing has. This is what I'm kind of afraid of, and this is recommended to me by Aretz. You know, remember Aretz? He was the transhumanist guy on my show a couple episodes back. Nice. Uh, yeah, and, and he, he just showed me this website because he works with, like, AI research a lot. And this is I don't scary. know how I missed that episode, but I'm going to listen yeah. to it. This and I love just, that you're mentioning this right I'm now. I'm telling you for, for you and for your listeners, because this is it's about how, so good. how the global network may fuck up our plans. How can we, like, get hackers do things because at this day and age uh this has been demonstrated that you can remotely hack uh, people's heart pacers right yeah well and we know about vulnerabilities on people's vehicles driving down the road yes. at highway speeds and th- there is a google yeah. for your power plant nuclear power plant or your phone or whatever in which someone of interest can easily just by just by knowing your ip and they can find out your ip because oh hey you use the wireless spot in starbucks Oh, too bad. Someone probably already has your IP address anyways with your device. There you go. Uh, it's super easy to get those. And if you just put an IP here, you can find their vulnerabilities. You can find anything. And this is this site was created as, as a warning of what could happen. As a warning, why should we take real care when implementing AI 
and the internet and everything, because everything's connected. But is that like always a good thing? Now, and just to clarify, do you have a personal stake in Shodan? No. Right. This is a friend though that you know. My, a friend of mine. Who... A friend of mine showed me this web page, and his research partners from across the world have like made this. It's so this a is purely... really friend of a friend at most kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a just... scientific. Yeah. They make no money from this. This is a free scientific project. There are no ads there. There's nothing yeah, there. Exactly. I don't gain anything of this. So it, just, I'm uh, not seeing a bunch of ads on their page either. They do have something for pricing here. Because you can like purchase their services, get, like a high-powered version of it. Sure, small business and corporate freelancer. You have to um, pay to kind of use it if you want to get a bunch of results and whatnot, whatnot. But mm-hmm. I do not because you can have test searches for free, mm-hmm. and this is for their commercial packages. But I I do not endorse them. It's just that developed as a thing because there is a free it. API plan. Yep, free API. Simply sign up for a free account, and we you'll be able to start using. Yeah. So you know what's cool to me about that is that it's you know you're you're talking about a common concern that we all yeah. have these days, which is you know we're living in a continuously connected world yeah. that's increasingly connected, like saturated more and more. Now, right now in this house, we don't have a dishwasher online yet. All right, mm. but we have one or two routers. We have a the room that. Uh, is downstairs next to my room has an Xbox in it that's connected to the internet. The room in the living room, there's an Xbox and a router, both of which, and a smart TV. So those are three devices that all have separate connections to the internet. And yeah, these guys basically, they start this project and they use this as a warning, but then they figure out that yes, corporations will pay these guys so that they will have access to your IP so that they would find out we know. I was going to say, what? including the vulnerabilities, right? Yeah, including that stuff, and, and then you'll get, like, ultra-targeted ads, even more than you have been already. All right. This well, is the real danger. This is my conspiracy theory, but there, there are things, no, man. I've talked about the Internet of Things a number of times on this podcast, and that's why I like that this is something that you brought up, because it is on target for me and my audience, so... Uh, check it out, everybody. I think check out Showdown.io and decide if it's a uh, helpful tool. So, Kristaps, I want to thank you for joining me today and you know spending the time that you have both out on our field trips uh, out in the field in, in both Spokane and in Seattle. Ah, uh, dude, looking at Tartarian architecture. I have, and it reminds right. me of home, really. Because thank you for that. This is awesome. It was really fun because in a way, you know, we back at home in Europe, and again, hashtag European listeners, you'll understand me when I said that we're used to old architecture, but the nature here and the sheer size of everything is like super more widespread. It's kind of different. So when you see some old building here in the States, you truly are like, huh, how did that, you know, endure so long? Because nothing else has. Everything else looks super new. Yeah, maybe what's it doing here? Yeah, exactly. That's the thing is, like, you have a lot of places where, like, this is, like, this old building in the center of, like, a bunch of surrounded by, like, skyscrapers and whatever. Well, that's the thing. And I hope we're not totally done ever talking about this topic on any level. Um, Oh, no, no. As soon as I get back home again, I will never speak to you in my life. Of of course. (laughs) I will block you on all social media. Uh, uh, And we shall have no contacts. Yes. No contacts. Perfect score. (laughs) Yeah, no, of course, dude. All right. I love it. All right. So, everybody, thank you for hanging out with us today and uh, checking out the National Cultural Development Under Communism. You can check out Kristaps reading it in full over on YouTube on my Baked and Awake YouTube channel. Probably find some more fun stuff in that CIA reading room in the
the coming months. I'm not I'm not sure yet what I what I've got, what's on the menu before then, but it's a cool new resource and I'm going to call it a mainstream sort of historical repository, you know, with the grain of salt that we know who gave it to us every time. Um, but until it's been totally debunked as just a thorough funnel of miserable disinformation, which may come to light in coming years by everybody else, but right now I'm, I'm kind of digging it. So it's, it's a cool place to go to look. I'm going to start checking it when I check other unrelated mysteries and things that sound like a conspiracy to me. I might roll on over to that CIA.gov and just type in the keywords that most occur to me with whatever the mystery is and see if I can find a CIA report on that. You know what I mean? Oh, man. I have to say that for, for my guys. Well, this is probably the first Eastern Border episode recorded like while fucking baked and awake. There you go. All right. We were because, baked and awake. We, we did smoke. We didn't talk about it, but... Because <laughs> back at home, this stuff's super illegal, so I, as a honest tourist, I have to try it out. Feels amazing, though. Secondly, for uh, my people from the Eastern Border, checked out Bacon Wake podcast. Thanks for listening. And I'll be home soon, then I'll be gone to Ukraine for three months. I'm going to keep in touch with, with Stephen here, but hey, I'm going to be trying to do my best journalism. At any rate, well, for me, it's... До свидания, товарищи. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.